0: Several years ago I suffered a small stroke, which I was lucky enough to walk away from at only the cost of many of my long-term memories. It fragmented that part of my meat hard drive to the point that I had to relearn much of my teenage and early adult life from photos and exposing myself to those people and places again. Sometimes my memories are spans of imagination to bridge the gaps. I remember my family in patches up to my teenage years and not much between my second year of high school and my mid-twenties, with gradually more detail as I reached my thirties and up to my forties where I have no problems. Sometimes it feels like I never saw the first few seasons of the television show in which I'm the star. People just pop in like they were always there. It's often frustrating and it doesn't help that my experience makes me more prone to spikes of anger. I don't live where I lived those dead patches of my life, so there are literally hundreds of people from that time who exist as either ghosts, abstract feelings, or not at all. I visit the hometown every so often to put my flowers on my parents' graves and try to remember when and how they died. I keep in touch with my estranged sister, whose memories of family are tainted by her bad experiences and resentments towards our parents. My only window into that world is through my younger sister, who I wouldn't keep up with if not for our shared family. She lives in my old hometown, and our age difference is such that we knew many of the same people. Most of those people have moved away, but some planted roots less than a mile from where they grew up. For some reason those are the people I know best through talking to them, even though they probably played little or no role in my real life. People will approach me every so often, there and in my own adopted city, and I'll have no idea who they are. People sometimes get mad at me for insulting them that way. I've had ex-girlfriends slap me and close buds walk off angry because they don't understand my situation. Some think that it's a joke. Sometimes it is sad, but other times it can be downright scary. I was sitting in a pizza joint in the business district of Trenton, Delphia working on something among the lunchtime crowd when someone sat down in the empty chair opposite me. I looked up from my work and automatically began the process of threat assessment and identification. For me it has become a practice. Usually it's someone I know and I'll act like most people. If I don't immediately recognise the face but they seem to know me. I would try to index them in my patchwork brain somehow. But this was someone I didn't know, but might have seen many times. Older, fifties, male, stocky, grinning with confidence, leaning forward on his elbows, indicating acquaintance with me. The eyes are familiar. My index traces that to a feeling of unease. It's not an ugly person, but his gaze is severe. He wears a suit here, like it's a costume, because his posture isn't good for the cut of the blazer. That smile is not entirely pleasant, except that he's trying to make it seem so. This process took me about three seconds, which is just long enough to seem like an awkward pause, because he says nothing at first. He just waits for what I guess is an automatic reaction. Now I'm in a pre-COVID crowd in close enough to smell the entire menu and overhear a dozen life stories and woes if I had the want to do so. So I'm not feeling threatened, but just uneasy. After a few more seconds I actively stop blinking to see how long it will take before we will start this conversation. He breaks and goes first. You don't recognise me, do you, Jimmy? His smile broadens and I can't help but admire an expensive rack of teeth that I think might be more appropriate inside the head of a mule. The skin over his forehead wrinkles, carrying two plucked but pulp eyebrows along the slope. This helps me because nicknames are great context clues. My parents call me James. My colleagues and current friends call me Jim. My sister calls me Jimbo Dumbo because she's an asshole. And only people from back home in that grey zone of time called me Jimmy. My subprocessor brain keeps working. My face neutral, I replied with the usual. Sorry, no. I have a bad memory for faces. That smile is trying to split his lips off his face. His eyes narrow to a severe degree, and they glisten with tears pressing out between the lids. He blushes hard like I'd slapped him. It's honestly creepy, but proves my abstract memory of this clown is accurate. I didn't think so, Jimmy. This is you now, huh? Not sure what to say to that, he's starting to hold himself together, putting pressure on his elbows and bringing himself across the centre of the table with his bullet-topped crazy person face nearing the edge of my laptop screen. That flimsy barrier gives me a little comfort, but not much. This is me now. I'm in a suit minus the jacket that I left in my car. I'm thirty years, fifty pounds, and a lifetime of experiences beyond whatever the hell he's thinking of as then, but seeing how he's wearing a suit that he probably digs out only for job interviews, weddings and court appearances, looking like he's either seething or suffering from an impacted bowel, I could easily dismiss the air of contempt in his statement. I am me as always, I guess. This was the best I could do while the brain meets work to give me something to work with. He says, I didn't think I'd ever run into you again, Jimmy. I bet you hoped I never would. Idiot, I thought. I just told you I don't recognize you. Practiced this in a mirror, did you? His face is not in my nightmare directory. He is not one of the dozens of images that I only see in those lucid dreams that mix fantasy with suppressed or fractured memories, usually about bad people or events, a breakup, losing my parents. A couple of bad beatings I suffered in school from students at the local clown college. But this wasn't anyone there. I heard you got sick. Did you have a breakdown or something? I just said what I was thinking. Clearly you're not an old friend. What do you want? Instead of splitting off his skull like a hot kernel of corn, his face suddenly went slack. His cheeks fell and his brow unraveled. The eyes, still narrow, softened to consider my response. I can't even tell if you're messing with me, he said in a low grumble. He sat back and planted his palms on the table, eyes scanning the dusty rafters of the pizza place in whatever the hell he was on about. It was the way his right pinky bent against the tabletop that unlocked something in my head. It was bent at an odd angle. The ring finger was weird too, They had been broken a long time ago, and not properly set. It was that and the phantom pain in my cheek and neck that connected the threads in my head, but not enough to give me a name or a place or a time. I just knew he was dangerous. When I get into those rare situations, I have to stave off a panic attack. It's a lot like arriving at work to suddenly remember you have a big presentation to give, or that dream where you're in finals week but you never attended class. "'You smug, selfish asshole,' he growled. His fingertips pressed down on the checkerboard tablecloth. "'If I saw you anywhere else, on the street, in an alley, "'back home maybe behind the school, I would end you.' That last part drew with it some ancient hatred that broke past the practice facade that he perfected in front of a mirror for probably many years. There was something evil but honest on that face, reflecting a truth in his heart about me. In front of me was a mystery from inside the dead space of my past. My face burned and I held my hands behind my monitor when they started to tremble. Something about this guy's face displayed all the bad men in my life that I'd forgotten. All the hidden dangers among the enemies I may have made and forgotten. It's like I'd slipped on the skin suit of some kid who died at 23 and while that kid may have met this guy, and clearly not hit it off with him, the Skin Suit's current occupant had literally never met him before. Under less hostile circumstances, I would have tried to explain that my gaps were not chosen. I happen to remember a Thanos snap of memories from certain times in my life. I only know certain people existed in those gaps, because I have a sense of object permanence that suggests they came to me from somewhere. All I could do was shake my head slowly, maintain eye contact, and watch for sudden movements. Aware that others were tuning into our intimate reunion, the man worked to pack all his anger back into himself. It was hard, but he managed to put the toxic paste back in the tube and sat back. It gave me a better look at the old suit that fit him better ten extra pounds ago, the new tie that someone had given him, maybe for whatever brought him to town. His face fell into an expression of disappointment, like this was a moment he'd dreamt of and it was wasted because of a dozen witnesses. Then he shot up out of the chair and left the restaurant. He didn't even order, I guess. I sat there, lost for what I'd been doing in the first place, took my time to stop the trembling in my hand and the sparks in my head, and made my way out to my car. I sat in the driver's seat, still frightened. Not about what had just happened, but what I might have done to earn such seething hate from a stranger. A shadow crossed the driver's side window, and I looked up with a start. It was him. He stabbed a finger into the glass. That gesture felt familiar, and he yelled. Don't you ever show your face back home. I'll smack the fat right off your face, you hear me? He pounded the side of his hand against the glass but it simply trembled, about as much as I did, and he was gone. Surely something so heinous would be in a police record, right? At least a tale told by people from around that time and place. I had no inkling of such a thing and no cool story to put a face to. Doubtful, I began to resent the fact I didn't have the presence of mind to ask a single goddamn question before he bolted. That fuel made my damaged brain fire harder through the mess of memories and imaginings. The based-on-a-true-story section of my head that tries to make sense of what I no longer witnessed. Greg. That name jumped out at me, complete with the extra G, making it seem more real. The face was just a flicker, and my need to get more forced me not to think too hard about it. Part of my coping mechanism is to assign values where none exists, making connections for the protection of my sanity, but at the cost of real memories. I have to distract myself from painting in memories and let that subconscious part of my mind work out the facts as best it can. So I went back to work and made an appointment to see my sister that weekend, put flowers on graves and find my old yearbooks. I wanted to go on social media and ask my friends from that time about the guy, maybe creep on their friends' pages, looking for a grinning skull for a profile pic. That's a danger too, as every new face that registers risks becoming a fictional version of itself. Something about boots, snow. These useless reports emerged early, but I was able to revisit them, knowing the boots were important to me and that the snow was cold and hard. There was physical pain associated with these memories too. I also started running my tongue over a chipped tooth for the first time since I could remember. I drank hard that night, because while I'm not supposed to, it kills my dreams. That weekend I met my sister, who didn't recognise my description of a man thirty years beyond any memory she could have had of him. I asked her if I ever did anything so horrible that made a man want to kill me over it. She replied that I made her feel that way a lot. Then she asked me to borrow fifty bucks. I was much luckier over golf with a friend of mine who understands my situation and represents a good friend I lost. He is the custodian of many of my memories and helped me recover those first few years. We grew apart because, he says, I developed a different personality and was all about things in order and following instructions. You went square, he said, not registering the irony of calling it that. Do you know someone named Greg from our past who I really pissed off? I described him and explained the conversation we shared. Philip was doubtful, but it took a while to consider it. As he did I added my random evidence a favourite part of boots winter time and the snow being thrown into it and chipping a tooth maybe Philip looked at me and I could tell he knew it was before I met Philip but he had heard about it I was 15 I got into a fight with some kid named Greg who just came into the school from somewhere else He was as Philip put it a dick Within a month he had been expelled, and part of the reason was that he beat the living crap out of me. It wasn't important to Philip, so my old story about getting beat up on the walk home through heavy snow wasn't a big memory for him, but he remembered the part about the boots. It was winter. Greg had on old sneakers and a long walk home. He walked with an older kid, a dropout called Clyde who everyone in the neighbourhood hated. Clyde and Greg were pretty much kindred spirits in their life, hating rebellion and love of violence. When Philip told me Greg beat me up for my boots and maybe left me to walk home in wet cold socks, it didn't jog a memory, but it made sense. We continued playing golf and I lost six balls before I gave up on the fairway of the 15th. Soon after getting back to my hotel, Greg Kowinski had a name and a face. Google filled me in on the rest. I wouldn't know about the Boots story until much later, but Greg Kowinski was a convicted felon. He was also on the sex offenders registry. I was, if not the first domino to fall in his life. I was the one that ensured they would begin falling steadily onwards. Soon after he was expelled from school, Greg met up with other troubled kids, including Clyde, and began selling drugs. Soon he was trafficking and working in a warehouse that packaged and delivered large quantities. Along the way he pursued his favourite pastime of meeting, using and abusing young women. He went to jail for beating a woman at a bar. He dated another woman and went to prison for a sex act with her underage daughter. With doors closing behind him, Greg created an enemies list of all people who wronged him. I know this because I was used in evidence to put him in prison again for stalking an ex-girlfriend. How he was back on the streets and his purpose in Philadelphia, remains a mystery. But I'm pretty sure I was, am, on his list. One of his many victims who walked home half a mile through snow in thermal socks and whose parents had Greg arrested for it, knows where I live. I know this because he sent me a message on Facebook that was sequestered because he isn't a friend of mine or connected to me elsewhere. He quoted my address and added, See you sometime. That was over a year ago. I've locked down my social media since then, especially after he started liking pictures of my wife and sister. I hate going home again now. I hate going to the old haunts, even ones in public places because I don't want to see his face. I'm at a point now where the gap in knowledge has narrowed to the point that seeing him again may fill in all the details of that beatdown. Somehow I think remembering it frightens me more than the risk of anything he would try to do to me.
1: The Hester House was a legend passed down from class to class in my high school over the decades students and even teachers told a variation of a story about a house belonging to one of the earliest families in our community in central pennsylvania that burned down a century earlier but reappears with the first full moon in october the story was based on a real house that belonged to a family which owned much of the land in the county but sold it off for residential and commercial development over the decades. When the house burned down in the 1950s, it took with it the last of the Hester family line. The problem was, no one knew where the house had been. There were some old foundations among the southern slope of Peter's Mountain, but none of them could be linked historically to such a house. The only history was that of the suburban legend, which evolved over the years. The one thing that remains constant was the promise of a treasure hidden under the floorboards in the house. If you found the house while it existed in our realm, you might find cash, gold and jewels enough to make you rich. Of course, if you didn't get out of the house before it disappeared, you would go with it and become a ghost inside its walls forever. Of course, this was the excuse used by high school kids over the years to go into the woods, up on Peter's Mountain to camp or have a bonfire, or try really hard to find the house. In the 1980s, it was still a time when parents didn't mind their kids being gone overnight, and none of us had cell phones. Overnight games of Dungeons and Dragons were common on weekends, and my gaming group was led by a kid who lived at the base of Peter's Mountain. He and his brothers loved the story of Hester House, and as October approached that one year, He took a break to persuade us to leave our tabletop adventure and go on a real one. We were a group of six boys aged 16 to 17, and it was easy for us to tell our parents we were staying over at Cliff's house for a marathon weekend D&D session. Instead, we gathered camping material and agreed to head up the mountain to a small campsite Cliff knew, and as the full moon rose over the mountain, search for Hester House. Of the six of us, We lost the sixteen-year-old for lack of permission, we lost two more who chickened out. So the three of us remaining had to split the gear which put us behind schedule for the camp. The woods were damp and leaves were already falling across the trail, making the shallow uphills slippery and steeper climbs treacherous. Getting up in the daylight was going to be fine, but after dark, there would be two miles between camp and Cliff's home and another three miles back to town. So we were committed. We reached the clearing where Cliff and his brothers, and a lot of Hester House Seekers, made camp. It was a relatively flat area with a view down the mountain into the trees. But we were totally insulated by trees and cut off from the world by the sound of the forest, with only the regular whistle of a distant train to cut through it. The wind rose from the west and cut through the trees, making our activities difficult. From there, things started to fall apart. There were poles missing from the tent bag. We could only find a limited supply of dried firewood to get the campfire started. The wind freshened, the darkness swept over us as the sun set behind the mountaintop, and clouds approached from that direction. The temperature plummeted from the mid-fifties while we worked up a sweat to the low forties with a chilling breeze. Cliff and I struggled to improvise solutions for the tent, using branches to prop up walls and tying others to trees with nylon rope. Meanwhile, Keith fumbled and stumbled trying to get the fire lit, resorting to lighting an entire box of matches under the kindling in a gamble to get the fire lit and hot enough to dry out the moist firewood. We knew that any significant rain was going to put it out, and we would be huddled together in our sleep bags under a sagging tent all night. We abandoned the idea of searching for House and prepared to weather a storm, Once we established some kind of camp, the rain held off for a while, just bringing a cold drizzle. We took turns maintaining the fire and threw shade at one another for not checking the equipment or planning for the weather and generally being miserable. As the light faded we heard movement in the woods around us, definitely human footfalls through the leaves and underbrush we decided. It cut through the sound of dried leaves rustling and falling from the whistling wind through the trees and the updraft that blustered up the side of the mountain. Suddenly, a big object landed right in the middle of the campfire, throwing hot embers and burning twigs in every direction, including our tents. The evening brightened and a dance of fireflies over the fire. We stepped out to find what happened. Did a limb fall? Was it a wet branch, popping, with boiling water pockets? It was a rock the size of a basketball. Cliff pointed out the dark figure standing in the trees on the far side of the fire. It was a tall, husky figure, standing slightly hunched like he was getting ready to charge or run away. Movement through the woods resumed, and we detected three other people about fifty feet up and down the mountain around the campsite. We figure we stood motionless for moments. Cliff yelled, more ticked than afraid. Who are you guys? Don't mess with the fire! The first figure started laughing. (laughs) It wasn't another kid. It was an older, raspy laugh joined by other older-sounding voices and laughter. A soft ball-sized rock struck a tree over my head and bounced off to one side. Another sailed over Keith's head and struck the tent, snapping the branch holding up the one side. We scattered. I don't know what the others were thinking, but I wanted to keep trees between me and as many of them as I could. The laughter intensified and more rocks landed in the campsite. I slipped in the wet leaves and slid down toward one of the men, and he rushed forward toward me, arms out. He was wide and slow, jiggling as he advanced and laughing like it was the funniest thing he'd done all year. He slipped and planted himself face first in the muddy ground. By that time, I had traction and was heading back up the slope toward camp. I took a small rock to the shoulder, but it glanced off my padded shoulder and I kept moving. I got to the camp and one of the men was standing in front of the fire, his features still in shadow. He pointed at me and roared, Leave Hester House alone! He took a couple of burning logs and tossed them into the tent. He ran off, chased by the others in the same general direction, Cliff and Keith rushed back, the tent was a loss, we had to smother it, and then it began to rain. A wall of rain rushed in from the west and it poured so hard that it put out the fires and left us in darkness. We huddled together to be able to talk over the rain. Are they gone? Where'd they go? What do we do? We had flashlights and, while cold and soaked, we were uninjured. We gotta get out of here. We heard footsteps in the darkness and a single beam of light shot out from the forest over us. The voice from before screamed,
0: Leave Hester House alone. Get out of here or we
1: will kill you. We abandoned our gear except for our flashlights, and Keith led us away from the site down the mountain. We were moving at half the speed coming up. It was sloppy and slippery, and the rain was relentless. We slid on our butts over the steep parts and had to stop to work out a way down that wouldn't risk breaking our legs or necks. Every time we stopped, a rock would sail between us and snap against other rocks, or a tree, and a voice would shriek at us to Go! Go! Or we will bury you on this mountain. I want the skinny one. She's cute. A rock hit Keith on the cheek and nearly sent him over an incline, but he dropped to his knees to keep from rolling. It dazed him, but his adrenaline kept him moving as his skin swelled and darkened. I said the first thing I thought of to Cliff. If these are your brothers and their friends, Cliff, I will be so pissed. Cliff shook his head. Not them. They'd never do this. And I believed him. But most of the town dating back a generation or more did know about the Hester House story and the date. It would be easy for someone with bad intentions to come out into the woods on the first full moon and wait for a bunch of stupid, unprepared kids to make a camp far from witnesses. Suddenly, the stories about kids going missing inside Hester House trying to get to the treasure made me think if anyone actually did go missing on a dark night in the woods. And the house was just a cover story too. A rock hit me on the shoulder blade with the power of a fastball. I felt something pop in my spine and a sharp shock up and down my entire body. After what felt like hours in the increasing darkness dry heaving from the panic and the struggle, coughing and spitting up snot and rainwater, we came to the road close to Cliff's house. There was a man standing under the streetlight by the street. He had the same predatory hunch as the man at the campsite. Soon three or four other figures appeared and blocked our way. We stopped, and they began moving toward us. Suddenly, our silent prayers were answered when a truck rolled around a corner, heading up the hill, and bathed them in the headlights, blinding them. These were not kids or young adults. These were older men, faces in their fifties or sixties, bloated and wrinkled, covered in dirty clothes and windbreakers. They were ugly, evil-looking men who had worn us down to exhaustion and were ready to strike. The truck did not slow down, but it gave us a break. Cliff pulled us to one side of the path and back into the woods along a smaller, natural path along the road. With a supernatural reserve of strength, we cut through the barbs and brush like rabbits eluding wolves, and came out scratched and scraped across the street from Cliff's house. The porch light was lit, and the garage door wide open. Cliff's dad was working on something inside the garage. We heard the men chasing us along the road, but once they saw the lights of the house, they stopped. We didn't stop until we were in the garage yelling to Cliff's dad that there were bad men after us. Cliff's dad called the cops. Cliff's mom took us inside, dried us off, and helped tend to our injuries. The cops never found anyone, but they scolded us for being irresponsible enough to go camping in the woods without supervision or preparation. The sergeant there saved his strongest words for Cliff's parents, effectively ending our weekend d and games. Prevailing wisdom was that it was probably some old guys who lived over the mountain who just wanted to scare some kids out on Hester House night, and they dismissed our dramatic interpretation of the peril which was, in their minds, the product of our excitement and hormones. The newspaper took a decidedly Halloween approach to the story, Spinning it as a tantalizing tale of transients stalking local kids on a camping trip, with who knows what in mind when they caught us. But weird Hester House guardians in the woods. It's been thirty years. But if I'm ever in the neighborhood again, I hope we never meet. Because I'll straight up murder you.
2: we were a bunch of naive kids traveling abroad in 1992 and our two-week beach vacation turned into two nights of horror ever since our sophomore year my high school gang of friends dreamed and planned for an epic trip to cancun in mexico one of us saw a movie and thought it would be an amazing destination for us to escape the new england winter and celebrate surviving the high school experience. There were six of us on the plan. Keith, our unofficial leader, lost his dad his junior year. And so this trip became our way of keeping him thinking ahead to something good. Greg and Kirk were big history and archaeology buffs. So they were as interested in the Mayan ruins as the beach and beer. Dorothy and Hannah were gamer girls, a rare thing in my area and were up for a trip to the beach with their big brothers. And I was just looking forward to an adventure. Unfortunately, we couldn't go the year we graduated. Some of us had to put our savings towards college or other experiences. And two of us got jobs that wouldn't allow the time off. Despite this, we had a pact to make it happen. A year passed, then another. It was five years before Keith phoned us to say he had booked Not just a room or suite for us, but an entire house on the beach for two weeks. Five of us were back in our hometown for the holidays. And we met up at a bar and had a great reunion. And Keith showed us the brochure he received from the travel company. The place was gorgeous, almost gaudy in its gold trimmings and ritzy amenities. Clearly the house was going to be expensive even split six ways, but it wasn't. In fact, it was a bargain for two weeks. What's wrong with it? That was Kirk's question. But we all were thinking it. Keith explained that it's the hurricane that swept through and had depressed the local economy. So these outlying properties were booking to try and keep up with the more prosperous city of Cancun. The house was nearer the village of Puerto Juarez, but near all the same attractions as Tulum and Xmal and we could go to any beach we wanted, take a boat trip to Isla Mujeres or even Belize if we wanted to for a third of our original estimate. We tentatively agreed because we knew Keith vetted the place before committing to it. He had already put down the deposit and set the weeks based on the hold and we all put it in the calendar. It was late in the season of the following year The truth was that we were all getting older and moving on. Some of us were in relationships and planning for weddings. Greg already had a baby on the way with his fiance. So time was running out on our childhood dream before we would part ways for good. Fast forward nine months and the day arrived. I had digested travel guides and had everything I needed. I took the cheapest flight, which meant layovers and switching gates. So I arrived later in the afternoon. I happened to meet Dorothy at the baggage claim. We remarked how grown up we both looked, shared a few hugs and agreed to share a cab to our vacation villa. We waited in a long line to be married up with one of the taxis lining the arrival area, caught up on the latest gossip and life events and entered vacation mode. Dorothy was getting married in the spring and moving to Europe. Hannah had to back out at the last minute because of work but sent her love. When it was our turn, we were paired with this old rusty bucket of Chevy steel driven by an older man who swept us up with the grace of a ballroom dancer and the smile of a car salesman looking to make quota. His name was Paolo and he wasted no movement getting our bags into the trunk and us in the backseat. Where do we go? I gave him the address and he looked at me in the rear view mirror. Eh? I repeated and he nodded, still somehow confused. After reporting to someone on the radio and including the address twice, it sounded like even the dispatcher was confused. He switched turn signals and began to merge right against the flow of traffic, exiting the airport towards the city. He quoted us a price and I agreed. We headed down an empty lane into the growing shadow of dusk while most folks were heading into the bright lights of Cancun. The road was two lanes and covered with litter. Shortly beyond the Omramp we passed a tent city crowded with people and torches being lit to illuminate families living in squalor. Toddlers and children without clothes sat in the dirt and under makeshift tent homes. Further down the road, beached vessels lay on their side, sunken into the sand or soil. Families with the means had converted them into homes by cutting holes in the hull to make doorways and windows. Stray skinny dogs and cats patrolled the roads for food, stopping to glare as we drove slowly past. There were few people on the road in the growing darkness. We had moved into the long shadow of the Yucatan rainforest on a road following the beach. The ocean was dazzling in the early evening, and Dorothy focused on that while I kept an eye inland. Paulo too wasn't as cheerful or talkative once he knew where we were going. You know people in Puerto Juarez, he said. I shook my head. No, a friend rented a house. Rented a house? He nodded, pretending to understand, but remained skeptical. It's a very dangerous place. You must be very careful. Dorothy stiffened in her seat a bit. We had entered the forest just a bit which obscured her view of the beach. She looked at me as if to ask, what did we get into? A mile more down the road, we emerged from the trees to again drive along the beach, inland. Bright jaundiced security lights bathed a strip mall which included a market and a few odd shops. The only market was opened and housed half a dozen or so taxis with drivers enjoying beers and sodas in the parking lot. Bowler honked and waved as we passed the men that cheered. He smiled and the presence of pleasant people relaxed us a bit, but his smile faded as soon as we went around the corner. Another half mile or so and the road was dark in the headlights. We made out some figures in the distance standing in the road. A few teenagers were standing in the road. A couple held flashlights and all of them carried heavy sticks. And Paolo began to slow down. Gang of kids. Paolo said, they want to collect the toll." Dorothy grabbed my arm. I had heard about something like this. How much Paolo shook his head. We no stop. He accelerated towards the kids on the road. And at the last moment, they dove for the shoulders as the taxi roared through dorothy dove into my lap and we ducked down as the back of the taxi was pelted with rocks we continued on Paolo got on the radio and reported it then mumbled to himself perhaps regretting getting this fare we arrived at the address shortly after despite the photographs emphasizing the dazzling facade and gardens the exterior of the property was wrapped in a 20-foot wall of concrete clocks topped with layers of clumpy cement into which hundreds of jagged bottle pieces were mounted in place of what might have been barbed or razor wire the driveway was blocked by a tall steel gate and an intercom owler had to buzz in The gate whined and scraped open against the corrosion and lack of lubrication, taking forever to open wide enough for us to enter. All the while, Baolo and I kept watch on the darkness for sign of those kids on the road. As soon as we got into the property, Baolo kept insisting that they close the gate as he pulled under an overhang at the door. Fortunately, the gate began to close itself. The front door opened and our three buzzed dude bros poured out onto the driveway. They firemen handled our luggage into the house, and we all began to hug and laugh. Paolo kept watch on the gate, distracted as Keith asked him about the possibility of driving them to Chichen Itza the next morning. Late, of course, so that they could sleep in and have breakfast. Once the gate was closed, Paolo was himself again sure he would be happy to take three maybe four in his taxi it would take an all-day trip and he quoted the price keith agreed and paolo prepared to head out you keep the place tight so the bed bugs not bite i come back nine tomorrow keith let the warning slip over his head it occurred to me that he greg and kirk got there during the day so they most likely had a much more positive experience than we did Paula waited outside the gate to make sure it closed before driving off. I also noticed he was returning to town with a wingman in a taxi who turned around on the road to hail him. The house had been carefully photographed to avoid capturing ugly concrete walls. Some of the walls looked to have been recently rebuilt, and the older blocks had holes in the interior that were patched up with cement. We went inside where the guys had already started playing D&D and drinking. The interior of the house exceeded the grandeur alleged by the photos. The place had a sunken living room with comfortable sofas and chairs, a spiral staircase up to the sleeping level and a massive dining area with a chef's kitchen attached. We got the quick tour of the place, but Dorothy and I were both exhausted from a day of travel capped by the ride from the airport. We both had cervezas from the fridge, noting that the pantry had been stocked by the owner prior to our arrival. Keith had already cooked dinner, but we were able to feed off the remaining fajitas and bowls of junk food on the gaming table. I didn't wanna roll up a character so late in the evening, but I hung out at the table with my friends, happy to listen to the pattern of our gaming once again. We were all older, spoke a little slower and thoughtfully, but it was like being home. One of the things I noticed about the house was that it didn't look out onto the beach, at least not directly. The tall concrete wall blocked the view from our first floor patio. The pool was lit from inside, casting the yard in a peaceful blue glow. Linking the property to the beach was another tall steel security gate through which I could make out a narrow sliver through the light of the rising crescent moon. This made sense in a way. Under Mexican law, all beaches were public spaces. The property line ended at the wall. My thought was interrupted by something Keith said. The phone doesn't work. What? Yeah, we were tired, so we were gonna call for a taxi to take us into town to a restaurant, but the phone doesn't work felt a little nervous about that. None of us had cell phones. Keith, however, didn't seem bothered. The owner's great, he lives in Puerto Juarez. I'll get in touch with him after we get back from the pyramids tomorrow night. Dorothy and I hadn't planned to take the long trip to the pyramids. We both planned to ease into the vacation by taking a trip to the beach and getting tanned. I wasn't comfortable spending the entire day without a lifeline. It wasn't an insurmountable problem, as I started working out ways to maybe take a cab into Puerto Juarez in the morning for Keith and see if I could fix the problem. A loud buzzer sounded and all of us jumped. The same echoed through the entire main floor like a game show buzzer sounding at the incorrect answer except for longer. As soon as it stopped, it buzzed again. Keith rose from his chair and walked over to a small alcove presumably to open the gate. Don't open the gate. Dorothy and I said in a duet. Kirk and Greg laughed. Keith stopped and shot us an odd look as the buzzer sounded yet again. I'm not. He opened a panel in the alcove that contained a small security monitor and intercom. He squinted to see what was on the monitor. I stood up and walked over. As I did, Keith muttered, bunch of kids, One kid was mugging for the camera and crushing the buzzer. It was a fuzzy image, but the fisheye lens and the security light gave us a look of about 10 people, not just kids, but men, women, and a few dogs milling around them. The one gazing into the camera wanted to be seen. It might have been the lateness of the hour or my own paranoia, but I recognized him as one of the kids blocking the road on our way to the house. Ignore them. I suggested the buzzer went off and everyone got annoyed. Dorothy put her face in her hands. It bothered her more than the rest for some reason. Can you kill that buzzer? I don't know. Keith shrugged. He searched the intercom and hit the power button. The buzzer ended abruptly. It seemed as though the kid mashing the button knew this because he immediately stopped and stepped back from the panel. He glared at the camera. The light washing out all his features except his eyes, full of mischief and a little anger. The group huddled together in the small groups, backs turned to the camera. Keith, unnerved by this, flipped the power back on and pushed the talk button. I didn't have time to say anything against this. Hey, what can we do for you guys? The group laughed so hard we could hear them inside the house. The kid stepped up to the intercom again, pressed the talk button and said something in Spanish that I barely made out to mean he wanted food and booze and maybe to come inside and party with us. In English, he added, we can bring in women and some ganja. Have a real good time, see? We all looked at one another, not to discuss the proposal, but the ridiculousness of it. Sorry, we're all partied out, Keith said, thinking of calling it a night the gang outside talks amongst themselves for a bit. The spokesperson considered this and then hit the talk button again. No, I don't think you'll sleep tonight. And the group ran off in different directions. And the spokes kid grinning wide as he glared into the camera and backed away. He left the camera heading around the exterior wall. Dorothy stood up and went looking for something that turned out to be a bottle of tequila. She was shaking. Greg went to talk to her because they had always been close. I had learnt later that Dorothy and her fiance were victims of a home invasion six months ago in Baltimore. They were tied up and robbed at gunpoint in the middle of the night. This was a massive trigger for her. We need eyes upstairs. Keith said someone needs to be able to see over the wall. I have security cameras here and there beachside. Kirk and I looked at the spiral stairs up the landing. Keith called up. Keep the lights off. We did. I went to a beachside bedroom and peered out the sliding glass door to the balcony. There was no window overlooking the side of the house. They were probably clinging to the wall to avoid to be seen. I sat on the king size bed and quickly decided that that was a bad idea. Because I immediately felt sleepy despite the adrenaline of being put under siege. And I stood up. Just then a volley of stones rose from behind the wall. A dozen or more softball and golf ball sized stones caught in the light of the pool area smashing down on the sand and concrete. Some made it to the balcony, bouncing off the metal railings before rolling into the pool. The crackling stones sounded like gunfire. And Dorothy screamed from the other room. Immediately, the backyard and beach were flooded with white light from the towers erected at the corners of the property. The jagged glass atop the walls sparkled and I could see shadows cast towards the surf and the top of the heads as small groups stepped back and launched another volley of stones. Some aimed at the lights while others came soaring at the patio window. None of the rocks aimed at the building reached the windows. They bounced off the railing or the patio overhead. The rock seemed at the lights just bounced off without effect. Kirk called my name from the front of the house, and I rushed out of the room down the hall and into a smaller bedroom where he was pointing out to the front wall. Someone had thrown a heavy blanket up over the top of the wall, a thick one, like one of the moving blankets they rent at U-Haul. He made out the top of a ladder. I looked around for whatever reason, and picked up the old radio clock beside the twin bed. I yanked the cord out, wrapped it around the clock, and Kirk gave me the look he gives when I do something stupid or pointless in our weekly D&D game. It wasn't until I got outside in the patio that my conscious brain caught up with what I was going to do. Just as a man's head peeked over the wall, I launched the clock as hard as I could like a frisbee across the yard, the 30 feet or so in his direction. It flew low to one side, but shattered when it hit the glass and concrete, showering the man in shrapnel, it hurt and startled him enough that he slipped off the ladder out of sight. He landed with a crash and a painful cry. The floodlights burst to life in the front of the house, lighting up the road beyond a handful of frightened kids scattered carrying their friend who looked really hurt. The sound of stones hitting the house continued out back and there was shouting. Kirk ran back to where Dorothy and Greg were huddled together in the bedroom. And I heard him shout, make sure they're not scaling the walls out back or charging the gate. Convinced they had abandoned their charge on the front wall. I returned to the rear bedroom and gathered the white stones that had ended up on the patio. Plumes of white smoke rose from outside the walls, curling in the security lights. Some more rocks flew into the yard, but they were all weak hurls landing into the pool with no effect. With about eight stones in my arms, I returned to the main floor. Keith was at the alcove switching between three monitors and a black screen. They got one of the side cameras, he said. What are they burning? I think they're burning the beach furniture. Half of them ran off. The other ones are back and the older ones and someone started launching Roman candles at the house from the beach. Dorothy began screaming as the fireball struck the overhang and sliding glass door bottle rockets followed along with an assortment of small explosives. A couple of quarter sticks landed just inside the wall and the concussive power rattled the windows. One destroyed a deck chair and turned the small flower garden into a crater. Then it stopped. The security lights remained on for five minutes until a lack of motion reset the compound in darkness. We had to adjust. And it was a frightening moment as Keith scanned the security cameras for a long while. There were no signs of them. Kirk suggested they run up the road or beach, but then the kid from the monitor walked up to the front gate again, a big grin on his face and was carrying a handgun displayed clearly for us to see on the monitor he shook the camera and pushed the talk button. No, I don't think you're gonna sleep tonight. He spit on the camera and walked away. None of us did except for Dorothy. If you count passing out from tequila and horror. We estimated we had about seven hours until dawn. Kirk argued that everyone who came out was either asleep or celebrating their victory over the tourists back at whatever clubhouse they shared. He wasn't ready to sleep though. We sat in candlelight to get the best view outside the windows. Greg patrolled upstairs for a while and then joined us in the dining room. The doors were open and the screen shut so we could hear anyone gathering out back, but only heard the gentle roll of surf. If they come back, the lights will go on, Greg said. If the police drive by and see that rug on the wall, maybe they'll check in. To be honest, we hadn't seen any lights except that of the moon and the ocean since the gang departed. It was a beautiful scene. To be honest, I tried to relax and have a few coronas to help. But we told stories of our glory days to keep awake and even had to shush ourselves from keeping from waking Dorothy. It was around three in the morning when the security light out front goes on again. We didn't have the energy to be startled, but responded immediately. I checked the security monitor. It was a couple of people there to collect the ladder and the rug, pulling the rug down triggered the lights and they quickly ran off back up the road into the dark. Tiny pixels of light shone in the distance as they switched on flashlights. The rest of the morning remains a fuzzy memory. I may have drifted off and may have the others, but none of us slept. Sunrise gave us all the confidence and Keith immediately conspired with Greg and Kirk to power nap before Paula returned to take them on the all day trip inland. I said we should go to the police and get the phone fixed before the three of them left the property in the hands of an exhausted me and already terrified Dorothy. Shortly after dawn, Dorothy came downstairs in a swimsuit walked past us without a word and walked into the pool. She dunked herself and began fishing stones out from the bottom. I helped Keith make breakfast and things began returning to normal. Keith agreed to postpone the trip until we could file a complaint and get the phone settled. We ate and agreed to ask Paolo to put us in touch with the authorities. When the buzzer sounded again, we all jumped a little, but it was Paolo. We let him into the compound. He was dressed for comfort, ripped jean shorts and an old golf shirt with sandals. We explained the night before and he didn't seem surprised except for the part about the phone being out. He walked with Keith around the side and confirmed his suspicion that the line had been cut outside the wall. The line could be fixed, but just as easily be cut again. With this done, Keith phoned the owner to let him know what had happened. According to Keith, he feigned concern and promised to use his connections in Cancun and Puerto Juarez to increase police patrols the next night and hand over the security tape to the officers who would come and investigate. Convinced this would solve all our problems. Keith, Kirk and Greg left the house late, but to put in the full day's hours away at the Chichen Itza site. Paolo pulled me aside and handed me a small metal case. He patted me on the shoulder as if confident I'd know what to do with it. Inside was a handgun with two magazines. Startled, I took it inside and wiped it down for prints, but I kept it in the kitchen. Dorothy said nothing all day, getting out the pool and showering. She sat on the patio outside the dining room and read a book. When the police showed up four hours later, I brought them in and explained everything. One of them spoke English well enough and explained the house we rented had been owned by a local drug trafficker. He wasn't exactly a kingpin, but he was able to keep a nice residence until his life was terminated. It was brought up by a local businessman, but tourists, for some reason, didn't like the idea of being this far away from the protected tourist zone. The kids were probably locals with nothing better to do than harass Americans, and we should relax and have a good time. They didn't even want to see the playback. They just took the VHS tape and wished us well assuring us that a car would drive by at least once an hour overnight. I didn't mention that a lot could happen in an hour's time. I kept checking the phone line as if the sudden lack of a dial tone was my first alert for trouble. I thought that if they could cut the phone, they could probably cut the power almost as easily. But I didn't share any of this with Dorothy. I made lunch, but Dorothy didn't want to eat. She didn't want to talk either. She sat tensely in the sitting room with her book. I collected the stones from the pool area and piled them by the door. I cleaned up the debris and then spent some hours soothing my nerves with beer, Jimmy Buffett songs, and a network of pool needles serving as a raft. The guys never settled on a time they should return. Paolo said not to even try because they had to drive through the jungle and there might be any number of delays or detours. It was best to be home by sundown. So when the sun fell behind the trees that second night and they had not returned, I started to get concerned. There had been talks of playing a dear adventure or just some card game that night. So their intention was not to be out too late. Dorothy had taken a nap in the middle of the day, but never went back outside after her swim. She returned to her chair with another book and went right into it. She refused dinner, but I made her something anyway, hoping the smell would just jumpstart her appetite. I felt like a well treated prisoner. People walked along the road outside the compound, sometimes peering into the upstairs window to catch a glimpse of the tourists. Others lounged on the beach beyond the gate. It was probably safe for us to go out there, but we weren't taking a chance. In the end, the night fell over the house again, and with just Dorothy and me inside it. When the security lights went off again, it was around eight in the evening. I had drifted off. It was the front side of the house, and I didn't see anyone outside the wall. When I got to the front door and looked out the peephole, I saw one man standing in the yard. He didn't have a weapon in his hand, but I wasn't sure if he was armed. He just stood there in the floor light, staring at the front door, then to one side of the unused garage and then to the downstairs bedroom on the opposite side. Dorothy got up and went to the phone. There was a dial tone, but dialing 911 left her with a deadline. She tried a few more times without success. At that moment, the buzzer sounded fearing another attack I retreated to the security monitors and saw Paolo's cab outside. I buzzed them through. When the gate began to move, the man in the yard fled to the back of the house. It took a while for the car to get inside and I moved to get the weapon from the case in the kitchen. The man raced to the back gate as I suspected it was accessible from the inside as he threw it open. As he did, about five men rushed forwards only to be stopped by the man inside and motioned to run which they all did. With the rest of the gang back in the compound, Paolo told us he radioed police when he saw a bunch of creeps outside the wall. They were at the market and were on their way. The three men were deeply tanned and a little drunk from their experience which they promised had a moment similar to the night before. Soon after the police arrived outside the compound and they interviewed Paolo and the rest of us. They had Polaroids of the people they caught near the marketplace and took our word when we positively identified them as the man in the yard and the others trying to get in. It was all they needed to not only arrest them, but to round up the other kids that harassed us the previous night. Settling in, I returned the weapon to Paolo, but he offered to sell it to me for 50 bucks. I can't say if I took him up on it or not. But the rest of us felt a lot safer for the remaining 12 days of our trip we even took to the beach as a group it took a while but dorothy began to settle in after three nights of no issues we all slept through the night and had the adventures we'd been dreaming of for eight years
0: I consider most of 1996 to be a rebuilding year in my life. I was 25 years old, fresh out of a relationship that crashed and burned right before the wedding. So deep was the crater and widespread fallout that I had to move to a different state to avoid my to-be father-in-law's friends in law enforcement, who were making sure I spent time roadside with them at least four times in the first two months after it all ended. I started over in a new place with a lack of resources and connections that were going to make it hard to get back into shape before I turned 30. Still, I was free and beholden to no one but my creditors, so I at least had that going for me. I lived within my means and rented a townhouse in a long row of properties in a less than reputable part of town. I didn't have time to do a walkthrough before I moved in. In fact, I rented the place Unseen, based on the online ad. It was close to my job, which was great because someone trashed my car the week before I moved out, and I ended up driving a beat-up Dodge pickup that I bought with the last of my savings. Once settled, I was locked into the rental for twelve months, which oddly enough gave me a sense of permanence in my new surroundings, and helped me get to work on my new life and career in human capital management and training services. My unit was at the end of the block of twelve, with two bedrooms up top with a master bath and a half bath in the living area. It wasn't a massive space, but it felt empty for lack of any furniture. I slept on an inflatable mattress my first three months, and used folding chairs and a card table to eat and watch television. The block was a place where people were either on their way up or back down. Young kids in their first home recently divorced with kids, the downturned from society in one way or another. There were fights, domestic and otherwise, throughout the night. Drunken parties and birthday galas took over the block on weekends, but nobody ever interacted with other families for some reason. No one knew anyone else's name or business, at least that's what the cops told me the first time they stopped by to ask me if I'd heard or witnessed something going on in the block. My immediate neighbours were just weird, like a space monkey on your lawn, inviting you to an anal probe kind of weird. It was a circus of three. The short, wild-haired woman looked like an off-brand troll doll, with big pink hair that defied logic and a malfunctioning soundboard that only shrieked when provoked. A tall, thin man that looked like an average bald man might appear, in an elongating funhouse mirror. I don't know how old they were. But they resembled old, well-worn furniture, like the contents of an elderly couple's storage locker, old and ready to be discarded. Troll doll lady and funhouse man were not fond of talking to neighbours, or anyone for that matter. They were troubled people. Their fights would bleed through the shared walls and get louder when talking outside. They knocked my only hanging art from the wall when one threw the other against the other side. Funhouse man liked to take his morning coffee in the sunshine, standing behind the screen of his front door, in tidy whities and an oversized flannel shirt. He was often the first person I'd encounter in the morning on my way to work, and he would stare off across the playground into the woods, as if in a trance, long before I left the townhouse, and probably long after my truck took me away. The cops knew them by their real names. There had been a child living there, but he or she had been removed from the home. A frequent guest in their little David Lynch sitcom world was a guy named Chuck. So named because Troll Doll Lady would yell his name every 10 minutes any time he was in the house. Chuck was a long-haul trucker who parked his sleeper rig across the street every couple of weeks. For some reason he didn't shower inside, so Saturday mornings He would often run the garden hose over the fenced in area in the back to take a cold shower, which was a lovely sight for the first time I didn't know what was going on. He sometimes walked out back to take a long beer piss in the runoff drain. His aversion to indoor plumbing was never explained to me, but I am forever grateful I never walked out back to catch him popping a squat in the tree line. For about six months I tolerated the noise, let the neighbours be bad guys and called the police when the fight went too loud for too long, or when they all got drunk and played their 80's punk records through the night and engaged in the song of their people howling at the moon. I got to a place where I was making enough money to buy real furniture or rent a better place. But I still had a lease to honour, so I bought a sofa, a real bed and a desk set for an office. It was still a minimalist affair, but comfortable. The townhouse felt like my home for once, and suddenly the intrusions from the neighbours were twice as annoying. One night Troll Doll Lady got into a fight with a pizza delivery driver, who knocked on her door by mistake, but wouldn't give her the pizza. I only know this because the pizza in its box hit my front window at different spots. This shrieking pink head witch assaulted the driver, which led to a light show by police that rivalled a Mannheim steamroller Christmas show. I was left to clean the pizza off the window and call the office to replace the window. They refused until the neighbours agreed to pay, so I enjoyed a cracked window for a month before the court accepted her guilty plea over the property damage. Her arrest was around the same time that residents on our block and the next one over began reporting burglaries and I was asked by police if I had any information or experienced anything odd. Other than the three Geek Circus next door, I told them I did not. Fortunately, my work and social life were on the rebound. I met a girl and we hit it off, though we stayed far from my house during the early part of our relationship. So I began spending more time away from home, though I would often come home late, to the neighbours in a loud state of either bliss or rage. During the day, maintenance worked to replace the insulation and update the HVAC system along the attic spaces along the entire block. I didn't think much about it because the work was done while I was gone in the daytime and I assumed the property managers would be coming into my place at some point to access my attic, probably the last one, as they started on the far end from mine. Quickly I lost track of the project One night I came home and something felt a little off. The front door was locked, the windows intact, and the back door secured. However, it felt and even smelled a little off. Sometimes I could smell the tobacco and weed upstairs when it filtered up and over the attic space, but I was sure someone had been there. I cleared the house in a short, quiet march, as my dad, a marine, taught me but found no one and nothing missing. My computer, two TVs, everything was intact. Except I went to grab a beer from the fridge to calm my nerves and found a six pack missing. I was sure I had two scratch-batch stout packs from my last visit to Stewie's microbrew. The loaf of bread seemed to be a little shorter than the morning before by several slices, and I couldn't be sure but I thought I might be missing some other items as well, but wasn't sure if that was just the growing anxiety over being robbed. I wondered if maintenance had been by to inspect the window, or work in the attic and help themselves to a snack and drinks. It would explain the musty smell in my apartment, and given the people I knew who owned and managed the property, it would not surprise me if a couple of their day labourers took a load off for a bit. Now the smell was mostly present upstairs. But in my office, which was opposite the neighbour's wall, it wasn't lingering dank, but was clearly gym-funk. I immediately assumed, labourer, because it made the most sense, so I didn't report it to the police that night. The next morning, however, I discovered my medications missing from my cabinet. All of them. My Lexapro, my emergency anxiety meds, and my other bottles were gone. I checked the windows and doors again, now in a near panic. I called off work for the first time, using a burglary as my excuse. I was the seventh house in two townhouse blocks to be hit in the past two weeks. The fifth in my block and one of the five without signs of forced entry. The police wouldn't tell me much about the other incidents, and didn't seem to believe that I locked my doors until I reminded them who I lived next to. By that point, I really didn't want to live in that place anymore. It no longer felt like home. I was sharing it with something that I felt lingered in the air around me. There was a feeling of dread, a sense of violation, knowing there was someone out there who was inside your life without permission. Once removed, it feels like living in a house without walls. And there was a serial burglar in the neighbourhood, where the cops traditionally left to work out its own problems and carry away the remains. A week after the break-in, a few things happened to mess up my world even further. First, Troll Doll Lady returned home, and because she was on house arrest, a welcome party brought out all the freaks Friday night. Second, because I was a dumbass, I had to come home and pick up a few things I'd needed to spend the weekend with my new girlfriend. As she was already in the truck, and we were to be on the highway out of town, there was no other choice but to bring her home with me. And the parking lot, including my spaces, were filled with what looked like gridlock in a demolition derby, so I had to arc a good distance away. Third, she insisted on seeing the inside of my townhouse and take a pee before hitting the road, so I had to introduce her to the freak show next door before even setting foot inside. Fourth, on the way up the walk to the front door, we encountered Funhouse Man in the open doorway, gatekeeper to the drunk Damasserie inside. He was wearing his morning apparel, briefs, and a long shirt, except with a can of Red Dog instead of coffee in his hand. Fifth, Funhouse Man looked at us coming up the walk, and spoke to me for the first time in seven months. You tap that, I think he said, his wet mouth spitting the words and his dead eyes scoping my girl. I shifted to put myself between them on the walk as we closed in on the door and fished my keys out of my pants. Funhouse man panicked, letting out a squeal before diving inside and slamming the door. The party went silent instantly. Sixth. My girl was unnerved by this, and lost all her thrill over being with me in that place. She walked inside my home and registered her immediate disapproval. She didn't even want to pee there. I remember making some excuses, saying it's a temporary thing, and a first step to better living, etc. But it was the beginning of the end for us. It was like she'd caught me cheating with trolled old lady. I didn't realise the party had spilled out into the front lawn and in front of my townhouse until I opened the door to see Chuck. The trucker standing under my porch lamp looking drunk, stupid and angry. He was joined by a few strangers who looked equal parts the same condition and also like I had just fired the lot of them from the sideshow. I stopped inside the screen door, trying to think of anything to say, clever or otherwise. Chuck, the trucker, started the conversation. "'You go at Kenny.' "'What?' I said. "'I ask if you went after Kenny in his own home.' Nothing like that happened, but I knew immediately that my reality was not shared by those gathered in front of my own home. "'No. He said something. I got closer to hear. He squealed like a little girl and ran inside. End of story.' I was okay at the end of the first two sentences, but my anger got the best of me by the start of the third and it did little to calm the group which had swollen to about a dozen people looking for blood or things to break. Chuck was not convinced by my answer and took a step forward to open my screen door. He put a hand on the knob and stopped. You step out here or I come in there. You're not coming in here and I'm not bleeding over that weirdo friend of yours. 8th. The words stopped there, because Chuck had punched a hole in my screen to get to my face. I fell back and accidentally tackled my now firmly ex-girlfriend. Fortunately, I didn't have much in the way of furniture to break on the way down. The only thing going for me at that moment was the miraculous arrival of the police, drawn by the parking fiasco and the noise. My face was broken. My newest ex had a bloody nose, and a sprained shoulder, and I was out a good $400 in deposits for a weekend that would never happen. In short order, a few important things happened. Chuck went to jail, and the charges against him would become the least of his problems. The party turned into story time, where partygoers spun their best yarn about how I insulted, assaulted, beat, or ass-raped Kenny, the funhouse man. I was questioned about the encounter by police and spent time with an EMT who I totally failed to impress enough to get her number. I was let go as several of the partygoers were arrested, for either public drunkenness or disorderly conduct or outstanding warrants. I'm sure this warmed me to the neighbours and their friends. My weekend companion was rescued from it all by a friend who drove her out of my life forever. You would think eight things in short order would be enough. I had to continue living next to these freaks for at least four months, and I was going to spend those months terrified by what they might do to my property while I was working or the burglars coming back. Ninth. I woke up the next morning to the neighbors cleaning up from the party. Glass and aluminium, plastic and cardboard packed two full size bins. Credit where it's due. These guys recycled, but from my what the hell position in my bedroom window, I noticed two of the bottles stood out from the keystone, Red Dog and Milwaukee labels. They were the scratch batch labels from my six pack. Now there was a chance that they were brought to the party by a guest with better taste in beer than friends, but that was too much of a coincidence. My brain presented a question I could not answer. Where is the attic access in this townhouse? I just assumed there was one somewhere, but never actually looked or came across it. So how did maintenance get into it? While totally unrelated to the beer bottle on a conscious level, my paranoia and cynical nature collaborated on a series of connections. As I looked around the house for a drop that I'd missed for months, My brain worked in its weird way to line up facts in such a way that would sound insane if I wrote it all out. I went upstairs. My office was where the funk smell had been most pungent. I looked around again and decided to check the closet. I didn't check it before because there was nothing in it. On the carpet I noticed a light dusting of drywall and paint flecks. I assumed it was rubbing from the sliding door against the wall, But it concentrated at the side by the wall and not equally along the track. The closet only had hanging shelves on the interior side. Looking up I expected to see an attic access port, but found a jagged square carved into the drywall ceiling. Maintenance was not exactly flip this shack quality, but I didn't think even they would use a box cutter to carve a hole in my ceiling, and none of them were skinny enough to fit through that anyway funhouse man was skinny enough to potentially weasel up and down though. The scuff mark on the inside wall of the closet was pretty telling. It took a while for the police to make their way over in response to my non-emergency call, but it quickly gathered their interest when the first responding officer reported what everyone missed the first time they did a half-hour search of my home. Three unmarked cars arrived after the initial squad car. My neighbours were uncharacteristically quiet once the first cruiser rolled up around noon. I offered a folding ladder, and the police looked up into the blistering hot attic. A hole had been cut through the insulation, and a spot in the corner wide enough for a small or slender person to fit through. I was questioned again downstairs for about an hour before I heard more voices upstairs. Then I remember going up there. Before I could ask, a familiar face appeared at my door. My landlord, Ahmed, looked concerned and astonished, which was a new expression, and the third after this, can I take your money and his general resting do-one face. What has happened? He asked. What's going on? Are you all right? He walked into my home without invitation, and up to me on my sofa. I asked him if he was here to fix my cracked window. Everything else happened without my direct involvement. I remained a guest in my own home for most of the day, as police took photos and marched up and down my stairs. I learned that my assumption about the attic work was wrong, that workers had to access specific units to get around the firewalls between them. In fact, there were holes in the firewall that allowed workers to enter the roof in one unit and run the entire length of the building. It was a measure that saved time and footsteps. But was a violation of several laws and codes, meaning that Ahmed's life was about to become much more complicated and expensive. These gaps in the firewalls also allowed someone to drill a hole in their own ceiling and run the length of eleven other homes, walking on the same boards laid by the property owners that muffled their presence. Every single unit in that block had a hole similar to the one in my ceiling. Furthermore, At one time the building had been wired for cable through the roof, and holes that had been cut to fish cable into the upstairs bedrooms had been plugged up years earlier during an upgrade. Some of those patches had been replaced with removable plugs, giving someone a clear view into various bedrooms. In the attic, police found a step stool with a rope tied to the top step. It was stashed in the corner of the roof over my next door neighbor's unit. But that's not the weirdest thing. Though all evidence pointed to the main access point being the smaller bedroom in my neighbor's unit, police didn't arrest Funhouse Man or Troll Doll Lady for the crime. At around three in the afternoon, police had recovered items stolen from other units along with various controlled substances. Troll Doll Lady was arrested for violating the terms of her bond. Funhouse Man was taken in for the drugs. And I was shocked to see a third person, not Chuck, walks out of the townhouse in cuffs. I'd never met him before. He was rail-thin, thinner than funhouse man by half. He had an old man's face and a young man's body, with scars and bruises all over his skin that I've only ever seen on corpses. White and waxy. He was naked except for soiled basketball shorts. He literally recoiled as if allergic to outside air and sunshine and had to be dragged shoeless to the cruiser. I don't know who that kid was, but I got the feeling he never left the townhouse, ever. Maybe not even the attic. The thought that this skeletal creep was looking in on me and had access to my life makes me overly cautious these days. I have eyes everywhere in my home and I take pains to inspect the smallest spaces in and around my property. I often wake in the night, seeing that face peering at me through a window, or from the dark. It's been a long time, and everyone I mentioned in this story by name is dead. I don't know about the kid, though. I never got a name, and I was unable to find him in any police record. Maybe he doesn't really exist. Maybe he didn't show up on any records and is languishing in prison as John Doe. Or maybe he's out there lurking in some upper level of an apartment building, or hiding inside the basement or walls. I've rarely ever felt truly home since.